0: Our second text for this Lord's Day comes from the Gospel according to John. We are in chapter 12, and we will be reading verses 12 through 36. Originally, I was going to stop at the first half, but I will read through the end of 36. And again, if you have your Bibles with you, let me encourage you to turn there and follow along as I read. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the King of Israel! And Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your King is coming." Seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now, the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people Uh, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. And Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. And the crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. And Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to Myself. He said this to show the kind of death He was going to die. And the crowd spoke up, We've heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever, so how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And then Jesus told them, You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he's going. Put your trust in the light while you have it, so that you may become sons of light. And when he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. If you have been in regular attendance over the past many weeks, either in person or virtually, then you know that we covered verses 12 through 16 back on Palm Sunday. So we will not recount that material again. Take a deep breath. But I do want us to take note of the fact that these verses place us only five days prior to Jesus' crucifixion. And yet the gospel writer, according to our numerical system for his gospel, has a long way to go before he concludes his account. There are 21 chapters in the gospel of John, and we are here at the middle of chapter 12. And we see a similar pattern in the other gospel accounts, where a great amount of ink is used to recount the closing days of Jesus' earthly life. Now that should convey to us the singular importance the first apostles placed upon Christ's atoning work, such that the gospel writers would apply this kind of emphasis to it. There are many preachers today who will de-emphasize the cross in favor of other Christian topics that they find more appealing, or they believe their listeners will find more appealing, Many of which are fine in moderation, but a steady, regular diet of these other topics will cause listeners to conclude that the primary reason Jesus came into the world is so that my life in the here and now will be blessed. And when I say blessed, I am using the common cultural definition, which is a life free of all trouble and filled with an abundance of things that brings personal happiness. Beloved, there is absolutely no scriptural support for that conclusion. And if you doubt that, then reread the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where he offers his version of what it is to be blessed. And it is my hope that by the time we come to the end of this message, you will see and agree. John reminds us here of the vast crowd that is present at this stage of Jesus' ministry. We know from the other Gospels that Jesus made his way to Jerusalem for this final Passover with a crowd in tow that probably grew the closer that he got. And then as Jesus spent his final Sabbath with his friends in Bethany, the crowd grew some more as pilgrims to Jerusalem had a curiosity about not only seeing Jesus, but also seeing Lazarus the man whom Jesus raised from the dead. And then, on the first day of the week, as Jesus began to move towards Jerusalem, word reached those in the city that he was drawing near, and they came out of the city to take part in his escort. And it is this growing crowd that reinforces the resolution that the Jewish council has already made. That Jesus must die. For as they say here, their approach up until now has afforded them nothing. You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. In John's gospel, when he speaks of the world, he is not speaking universally, as in the sense that he is speaking of every man, woman, and child that is living or has lived or ever will live. But rather, his meaning is simply wider than that of Israel. When the Pharisees say that the world has gone after him, they, have been, they may have been speaking hyperbolically, but John was meaning that people from all over the world were coming to Jesus. And then, as if to illustrate that, there came this key moment in these closing hours that John alone relates when some Greeks came seeking a private audience with Jesus. These Greeks were, more than likely, Gentile converts to Judaism. That is, they had been attracted to the monotheistic Jewish faith through their exposure to the Jews who were living in their communities. But they probably had not received the sign of the Old Testament covenant, circumcision, and in that sense they fell into the category of God-fearers who were allowed to worship in the temple, but they were restricted to what was known as the court of the Gentiles. They could not, under any circumstances, go beyond the dividing wall which was clearly marked in that sacred space. Now, these Greeks may have come from as near as the Decapolis where Jesus has engaged in ministry, but they may have been from some greater distance. We have no information as to how they have become familiar with Jesus, enough to desire a private audience with him, but that is not significant to John's point here. His point is that a number of Gentiles have approached Jesus and they desire to see him. Now, Jesus has had encounters with Gentiles over the course of his ministry, the Roman centurion, the Gerasene demoniac, the Syrophoenician woman, and others, they have singularly come to Jesus. And those encounters were shadows of what Christ would one day do in far greater numbers as he, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, would reach the nations with the gospel. Up until now, Jesus has made it clear that that the apostles are to first concentrate their ministry efforts on the house of Israel. They are to carry the good news to them first. But the fact that there is a small group of Gentiles drawing near to him in the closing moments of his life is a signal to him that his hour has come to be glorified. Notice that when Jesus understands the request that is being made, that he does not personally engage them. He does not tell them to come forward out of the vast crowd and present themselves so that he can uh, do some Q&A with them. But that does not mean that what he says here is not meant for them. In the same way that Jesus ignores the line of questioning that Nicodemus wanted to take or that the Samaritan woman at the well wanted to take, So here Jesus answers the question that the Greeks and all others should be pondering if they are wise. He declares the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. In Isaiah 53, that well-known chapter that speaks of the suffering of the Messiah, it says in verse 10, When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. And the word that is used there is the word for seed. So to translate it literally, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his seed. Jesus knows that the atoning work that He is about to perform is not for the Jews only, it is for all people. It is for people of every race, of every tribe, of every tongue, of every nation. And as these Greeks come, desiring to see Jesus, seeking Jesus, Jesus sees them as the seed that will be produced through His death and resurrection. He recognizes that what is about to transpire on Calvary's hill will produce an abundant crop that no man can number. Reread Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10, and notice that this great multitude that no one can number is from every nation. And they are clothed in white robes, and what do you find in their hands? But palm branches. And they are the antithesis of the crowd that we find here in this chapter 12. This vast crowd that escorts Jesus into Jerusalem has a political deliverance on their minds. And they are focused on Israel only. They want Jesus as their earthly king to solve a problem that is the least of their worries. And when Jesus does not meet their expectations, their initial cries of Hosanna, save now, turn into crucify him. And what they fail to realize is that Jesus is focused on a solution that is not for the Jews only, but for people of every nation. And his solution results in a multitude so vast that no one can number them, made up of people from all over the world who have been eternally justified before God, waving palm branches to their risen King, singing a different song of praise. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This handful of Greeks are representative of that vast multitude in Revelation 7, and they are a part of the other sheep that Jesus mentioned back in chapter 10 when he was speaking of himself as the Good Shepherd. You remember when he said, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. And these Greeks are representative of these other sheep, and when they seek an audience with Jesus, it signals for him that these other sheep are already hearing the voice of their shepherd, and the hour for his glorification has finally arrived. Now, when we think of glorification, we do not typically picture the cross. When we envision glorification, we picture lots of cameras pointed our way because of some great achievement that we have accomplished. We see front page stories about us and book deals being thrown our way. When we think of glorification, we imagine our name up in lights and people stopping us in the airport asking for an autograph. We do not picture glorification the way that God does. A complete humiliation by way of an agonizing death on a Roman cross. And yet it is by way of the cross that the Son of Man is glorified because He is acting in perfect obedience to the will of God the Father for Him. And it is by this total surrender to the Father's will that the Son demonstrates His subordination to the Father. Paul describes it like this, that Jesus humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him. Paul was undoubtedly aware of Isaiah fifty-two thirteen, where God says through the prophet, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. So when Jesus speaks of the initial grain of wheat falling into the earth to die in order that it might bear much fruit, he is speaking of his own death, which is necessary. For without that, there can be no eternal life for any person, Jew or Gentile. But then he says something that is so disturbing, so disturbing to so many. He says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And he is saying that there is only one way for us to be his disciple, and that is by willingly surrendering ourselves to him. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Well, where is Jesus going? To the cross. The other gospel writers all relate a similar moment when Jesus spells this out like this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And Jesus is saying that discipleship involves sacrificing our plans for our lives and accepting His plans for our lives. He is saying that discipleship involves subordinating our wills for our lives for His will for our lives. Now this is the point where many stumble and fall because they say that's asking too much. But is it really? Is it too much to surrender our measly, imperfect plans for our lives, for the plans of an all-powerful, all-knowing, perfectly good, perfectly gracious, perfectly loving, perfectly merciful God who has promised to us an eternal salvation where all pain and suffering and sadness and sickness are non-existent? All Jesus is saying is that if you desire glorification, then the path to follow is the one that he's providing. For if you follow him, then wherever he is, there you will be also. And where is he now? He is seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus promises in Revelation 3, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear. Any worldly glorification that our sinful hearts might yearn for is temporary. The eternal glorification that Jesus promises is pictured in the book of Revelation over and again. There is no comparison. And these inquiring Greeks have signaled that the hour, which up until now had not yet come, has now come, and it leads Jesus to be deeply troubled in his soul. And We can only surmise that the full weight of what the cross means is settling on Jesus' heart and mind and soul and body even as He sees His remaining time with His disciples fleeing away. And in the face of this, He openly prays, Father, glorify Your name. I wonder if we realize that God is keenly interested in preserving the sanctity of His name. God commands that we are not to take His name in vain. Jesus teaches us to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. God declares through the prophet Ezekiel that the reason He rescues His people from their exile is for the sake of His name, that it might be glorified. Now, God's interest in doing so is not because He's insecure, but rather His interest is us. Because of our sin, we have lost our spiritual bearings. We no longer know which way is spiritual north. And to remember that God is God and we are not, God insists that we tread carefully where His name is concerned. And so when Jesus asks the Father to glorify His name, He is indicating that He is ready and in complete agreement with God bringing to fruition the redemptive plans for our salvation, even though He knows what this means personally for Him. And the voice of God audibly responds to his prayer. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. That vast crowd that was assembled heard this, but not everyone understood it. In fact, the majority did not have the ears to hear it. To some, it sounded like distant, rumbling thunder. Others discerned that it was words, although they could not decipher them, and they indicated that it was angelic in its origin. But notice that Jesus does nothing to clear up their confusion by translating properly, but rather he indicates that this voice came as affirmation that the hour has indeed arrived. And that means that the judgment of the world is about to take place. Not in the sense of the final judgment of all mankind, but as in the first stages of it where the powerful influence of the evil one will be curtailed so that the gospel might spread throughout the world unhindered. And Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to Myself. Again, Jesus is not speaking universally here, but He is indicating that the good news of His atoning work on the cross will be a message that draws all kinds of people to Him. People from every nation and tribe and tongue, Jews and Greeks and Gentiles from every corner of the map. I mentioned a moment ago The fact that these Greeks would have been allowed to enter the court of the Gentiles in the temple, but they would not have been allowed to go beyond the dividing wall that was clearly marked. Now when you get home later today, I want to encourage you to read the last half of Ephesians chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul has this in mind as he articulates what Christ has done to break down that dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile because that is what Jesus is saying here. Jesus recognizes that the final countdown has begun and God the Father is about to slay the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But in doing so, God provides the only solution that will truly erase the racial divide that exists in this world. Now, the crowd is confused about Jesus' intimation that the Son of Man, whom they understand to be the Messiah, must be lifted up from the earth. What does that mean? Who is this Son of Man that you're talking about? Is it someone different from the Son of Man that Daniel speaks of? We've always been taught that the Son of Man remains forever, We have so many questions. Please, clear them up. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light. Lest darkness overtake you. Cryptic, some would say. But really not so much. Jesus has declared Himself to be the light of the world. Many of these have heard Him say so either first or second hand. All of Jesus' signs have provided enough illumination to see that He is the Christ. And yet for many of these, there can never be a sufficient number of signs. There can never be a sufficient number of words. There is always a clamor for more. And so Jesus' word of warning here is offered as a final altar call. He is encouraging them to use the illumination that they already have and come to a decision about whether to follow Him or not. He is warning that if they do not avail themselves of the light that He provides, that the darkness will grow and grow and grow until it overtakes the heart and the mind and people will lose their way because all that remains is darkness. Beloved, that word of warning never changes. God has graciously provided sufficient illumination for any Greek who desires to see Jesus through the inspiration of Scripture, through the proclamation of the Gospel, through the testimony of the saints who, like the blind man in chapter 9, say, All I know is once I was blind, but now I see. God provides all that is necessary to see Jesus for who He truly is, the Son who willingly laid down His life on our behalf so that we might be justified in God's sight, clothed in the white robes of Christ's righteousness, and invited to participate in all that God has in store for all eternity. If we recognize Jesus as the Christ, we should not hesitate to follow him all the way to the cross for it is there that we will find a genuine and an eternal glorification let me invite you to bow your heads with me and pray for a moment